Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. And welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, and today we'll be speaking with Melissa Caldwell about her book, Dacha Idols, Living Organically in Russia's Countryside. Hello, Melissa. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. And how are things out in California? We have a beautiful sunny day today. It's going to be about 85 degrees, so I can't complain at all. Well, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, um, we're going to talk a bit about your book, but before your book about dachas, dacha idols, um, and before we go deeper into that, I just wanted to find out a bit more about how you got interested in studying Russia to begin with. Um, My interest in Russia began when I was in high school. I grew up in Tennessee and was very fortunate to take a summer program, um, Governor's School for International Studies, and I spent four weeks learning Russian and was completely hooked. And then when I went to college, studied Russian language and literature, and the more I learned, the more excited I got, and I just kept going with Russia. I find it an absolutely fascinating place. It certainly is that. And uh, when um, when did you get interested in anthropology? Actually, the first day of graduate school, I began graduate school. I was doing a master's in area studies, Russian area studies at Indiana University. And the day before our um, orientation was the day the putsch happened. And that, of course, opened up all sorts of possibilities to go and study, do long-term fieldwork in Russia, namely anthropology. Then you could finally go do that. So during the course of my master's degree, I took more anthropology classes, became absolutely entranced by the anthropological perspective, and then went to do my PhD in anthropology. Oh, well, that makes good sense. I mean, that did open things up a lot. I mean, I don't know if I – I mean, I had already been planning to do some research when I got involved, um, you know, but I'm, certainly five years earlier, what I was doing would have been very difficult to do work on nationalism in the in the Ukraine. But um, you now, you know, this book though is is this fascinating. It's about dachas, and dachas are uh, something we hear about all the time in Russia uh, when we talk. You know, they're out at their dachas or such, but we don't really hear them talked a lot about in the scholarly ways. Could you talk about how you got interested in them? Well, it is a topic that came to me in many ways. My first summer in Russia, um, 1995, I landed to do some preliminary field work and figure out what my dissertation topic would be. And my khazyaika, my landlady, immediately dragged me off to her friend's dacha. And in the span of about five weeks, I think I made three or four different dacha visits and was absolutely fascinated by this experience. And over the course of the next umpteen years, every time I went to Russia, it was always dacha this, dacha that. Either people were dragging me off to their dachas or they were talking constantly about their dachas. So I figured there must be something to this <laughs> phenomenon that I should investigate. Well, yes. I mean, if, if they're talking about it, certainly that makes sense. Um, now, when you said you were going, you went four or five visits that first summer, was, was that all with your landlady? Um, yes, it was to a number of her friends and relatives. So, And then, of course, when we would go to a friend's, 
one of her friends dachas, then there would be other friends and neighbors who would come in and start telling me stories about their own dacha experiences. And then um, other friends and neighbors would show up. So we'd go visit people. We'd be based at my because Yaika's friend's dacha, her relative's dacha, but then go visit other people's dachas as well during those mini trips. Okay, so why don't you describe a bit more specifically what a dacha is and how they are conventionally seen in Russian life. Okay, so dachas are small plots of land and the summer cottages that are built upon them. And these summer cottages can be very, very simple, rustic, structures like a tool shed to more um, substantial cottages, but still kind of rustic cottages, although that's changing in the um, most recent period, which I can talk about as well. Um, But then, so you have this little plot of land, this little cottage, and the other key element to the dacha is the garden. So Russians plant vegetables and fruits and berries and herbs and flowers. And these little gardens are completely packed with um, plants and and food. And so these have become supplemental food sources over the years. Um, In some periods, they were actually necessary as supplemental food sources. So during periods of food shortages, um, Russians have relied on these gardens very intensively. Um, But at other times, they've simply been a source of fresh, healthy food, um, kind of summer food, as you will. And so it's kind of that combination of the garden and then the cottage itself is kind of a place of rest and relaxation that have become really important for the dachas. That's how people tend to talk about or think about their dachas. And could you talk more a bit, a bit about the history of the dachas? Yes. Um, dachas actually, well, there's a long history that suggests the word dacha is centuries and centuries old because it means given, land that was given. But it was really with Peter the Great that dachas first came to be associated with the land in the, the cottage. So Peter the Great gave out parcels of land to his um, favorites, um, to other members of the aristocracy, and they built their summer homes on these plots. And so you see the original summer cottages around St. Petersburg and then spreading out. And then by the um, second half of the 19th century, with the growing middle class, those folks started creating their own dachas. In most cases, they were renting dachas from other people, but transferring the same idea of a summer culture with rest and relaxation and even a little bit of gardening to those dacha communities. And then during the early Soviet period, dachas changed again so that they became something um, that was given as an entitlement by the state. So kind of a reward to workers primarily um, to reward them for their work, also to encourage them to work harder because they were these dachas were intended to be places where people could go and um, rest and rejuvenate themselves. And so we see this transition of the dachas then over the last several centuries from being an elite um, an elite thing to a middle class thing, then to an entity that was presumably egalitarian for all members of society. Now, the hist- one of the reasons I wanted you to talk a bit about the history is you talk about two literary figures... Uh, in reference to Dacha life, uh, you first mentioned, uh, I think, a play by uh, Maxim Gorky. And 
I think, and he's very much talking about that new middle class, as I understood it. Uh, could you talk about that and the image he's presenting there of Dacha life? Yes. So, yes, Gorky is very much talking about the, the emerging middle class. This play is set up in a, a village community where there are um, old um, traditional village residents, so peasants and other folks who live in this village, and this is their life, and then the new dachniki, the, the dacha renters, this new middle class that come in just for the summer and rent the cottages. And the local residents, the local peasants, then are conscripted or employed, perhaps is a better word, to um, provide all of the services for these new dachniki. So the play is really about the, the observations of the local residents about these middle class interlopers and um, primarily all of the um, risque behavior and um, selfishness of this new middle class. There's scenes in which the new middle class Dachniki are um, complaining about their trials and tribulations and, oh, it's so terrible that all we do is complain to each other, but, oh, you know, life is just so hard for us. And then the observers, the local residents are observing them saying things like, why are they complaining? They have nothing to complain about. (laughs) And so it's this constant tension back and forth about the self-centeredness of this new middle-class generation. Now, your sources, or the the informants that I read about, don't seem to mention Gorky, but they do home in on Chekhov, who apparently also wrote about Dachas. Can you yeah. talk about that difference? Uh, is that simply an oversight, or is there a, a difference in the way they look at Gorky from Chekhov? I think part of it has to do with there's more a sense that Chekhov is a true Dachnik himself, that Chekhov is one of the people and truly understood the experience um, of the Dacha life, because the, the short story that my informants repeatedly told me to go read is also called Dachniki, and it's a very short story about a young couple who are retiring to the dacha for their honeymoon, but then all of a sudden their relatives are showing up um, and expecting to eat their food and share their cottage. Um, And the young couple are aghast at this, but then again, they can't say no because it's family and it's at the dacha. And so my friends, uh, my informants um, kept telling me that that Chekhov really got this sense of, wanting to retreat to nature, um, to be in this place of leisure and um, being able to breathe the air freely and just enjoy yourself at the cottage, juxtaposed against the fact that you've got family and friends constantly with you and around you and that you have to um, accommodate their wishes. And that's part of the dacha experience. You want that to be part of the dacha experience, even though it's a Um, an annoyance at certain times. So my friends kept impressing upon me that Chekhov really got the irritations, the minor irritations of Dacha life, very accurate. Um, But yet that he doesn't say that Dacha life is a terrible thing. It's still something that you want and you embrace precisely because there's this um, annoyance and pleasure built in it together. Now, I think they weren't as keen on Gorky for a couple of reasons. Gorky, um, as a writer, I think, for my informants, um, has a little bit of political baggage with him um, because he's associated with the Soviet um, regime in a way that Chekhov is not. But I also think that Gorky 
because he's simply focusing on a critique of the middle class rather than really capturing what my informant saw as the beauty and pleasure of this life. I think they felt that Gorky didn't necessarily present as um, comprehensive a picture of what Dacha life is really like. No, yeah, no, I understand. One of the things I was struck by, again, that, that story, this Chekhov story that you uh, you don't actually provide verbatim, but you, you go into a bit more detail than you did. I mean, these are honeymooners. Uh, I, I still yeah. can't believe that these people would be so bold as to go out and see the honeymooners they just seen off, but uh, it adds to that tension. Now, uh, you know, of course, and you also mentioned, as you were saying before, people invite, they, they invited you to go out to the dacha. Uh, this is, seems to be very much a part of it, is that invitation. Yes. Um, but uh, let's talk more generally about then, you know, what makes up Dacha life? What are the activities people do there? Uh, and um, how does that fit into that tension between family and uh, being in nature? Uh, yes. So what was fascinating about asking people what they did at the Dachas and why they went to the Dachas, most informants told me, well, I go to the dacha so that I don't have to do anything at all. It's my moment away from my real job in the city, my all the nuisances of living in an apartment building. I go to the dacha because it's this wide open, free space, and I don't have to do anything at all. And then, of course, I would show up at the dacha and discover that they were absolutely crazy with work the entire time they were there and probably busier than they were in the cities. So there is an entire routine of activities that people feel they must do as part of their dacha life. And that it's a fairly standard um, routine. It includes you know, working in the garden, um, whether it's you know, a real big garden where people actually have to do a lot of work or whether it's a small garden and people are tinkering, um, potting around in their garden. It's doing repairs on the cottage. Um, there always seems to be a project of some sort at people's cottages. Um, it's also going for walks in the forest and going down to the lake or the river. And there are kind of different moments you see when people in the Dacha communities actually kind of all end up in the woods together at the same time, just on a walk through the woods. Um, depending on what berries or mushrooms are in season, um, there's also an obligatory romp through the woods to go pick berries or mushrooms. Um, and then there is definitely a sense that you should socialize. And so neighbors will invite one another over for lunch or for supper or just walk through the, the dacha communities and visit with one another. And this all has the air of being spontaneous. But if you spend enough time in these communities, you realize that it's all very carefully planned. Even if people don't ask one another when they're going to be home, neighbors have a sense of when another neighbor is going to be home or when she's likely to be out um, sunbathing. And so there is this very carefully scripted routine that people go through when they're at the dachas. And um, with the socializing, the invitation, one of the things that informants told me repeatedly was that even though they love to invite people, um, guests, unexpected guests were always expected. And so they were always prepared for a friend or a neighbor to show up spontaneously or even a relative 
Um, in some cases, families, um, the grandparents might be at the dacha, and the kids may or may not um, be planned, but suddenly the kids would show up, and that was okay. It was like everybody was expected, even if you didn't know for sure what their schedule was going to be. So I think that kind of gets to the sense of there's a spontaneity, but yet it's very organized. Um, there's a sense that one must be doing one's own activities, but yet there's still this bigger community there around them. You actually have a lovely anecdote of the, uh, one of your informants who has her um, her badminton, I think it's a badminton racket, uh, yeah. available at all times. Uh, but as if this is spontaneous, as if, well, we might just want to play badminton. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and there was another case when a gentleman was walking through the woods and he stopped. He and his grandson stopped at my um, friend's aunt's cottage and he opened up his briefcase and he all he had were a pair of um, swimming trunks and um, some books of poetry because there might be an opportunity for poetry reading spontaneously at the dacha. <laughs> I, I don't, did you get that in the book? I don't remember reading that, but it's a, a lovely story. Um, one of the you get one of the refrains that you get in the book are these are the informants' concern about the authentic Adacha experience, and I I imagine you have some things to say about authenticity here. Yes, um, and what was fascinating was that when I first started the project, informants frequently told me that they were concerned about the authentic or the traditional gotcha lifestyle disappearing. And when I probed a little further, what most people meant by that was that they were afraid that they they would lose their dachas. They wouldn't be able to go out to a dacha. They wouldn't be able to participate in this lifestyle of going to the cottage, of gardening, of spending the summer at um, in the, the woods or on the, the riverbanks. But then after probing even more and watching people over the last 15 years, that concern has actually deepened into something else. Um, the complaints about the loss of authenticity or tradition are more and more being targeted at architectural styles of dachas, um, so that these small rustic cottages are in some places being replaced by big brick structures, um, mansion style structures. Um, that the small little informal fences and gates around people's cottages are being replaced by very large, tall um, wood or, in some cases, stone walls, um, that cottages are being closed off from one another. And so Dachniki are concerned that their entire community is being kind of walled off internally, that residents are walling themselves off from one another. And so there's a sense in which Dachniki are afraid that the very social experience of Dacha life is disappearing as well. And that, that perhaps is the most important question of authenticity that they're trying to grapple with. So another piece of that, though, is there's a way in which um, contemporary Dachniki present these concerns of the loss of authenticity as a, a new phenomenon. But once I started doing historical research and especially looking at earlier literature, you know, the, the stories, the, the literary stories about dachas, that 
concern with the loss of authenticity and tradition is, in fact, a historical phenomenon as well. So as pretty much as long as there have been dachas, there has been this lament about the loss of authenticity and tradition with dachas. So in some ways, my contemporary informants are simply repeating what their historical predecessors did many years ago. (laughs) Now, how much is this tied in also with... specifically Russian identity? I think there's a, um, it's very tied to a sense of Russian identity, Russian national identity. Um, It's true that the Dacha experience is not unique to Russia. You see it all across um, the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, even Western Europe. You see, you know, types of Dacha life. But, and I think in most cases, um, cottagers more generally are quick to insist that their cottage experience is the most unique, the most authentic type of cottage experience. For Russians, the way they frame that sense of uniqueness um, and cultural distinctiveness is also tied to the way they talk about nature as part of national identity. So that national identity is really rooted in a sense of the nation as a physical, geological entity. Nation comes out of the soil, in in a sense. And so because the dacha lifestyle is so intimately tied with the soil, it's both, these are cottages that are placed in um, natural spaces, um, and there's a garden in which things grow out of that soil and people then eat the products from their gardens as a way to um, not just uh, reproduce cultural culinary traditions, but also to strengthen the physical body, the actual health of the Russian person by eating things out of the soil. Russians then see this entire package of dachas, gardens, soil, and nation um, as being what sets the dacha experience apart as being something uniquely Russian. This idea of, I mean, I may come back to some other issues before, but I wanted to carry on with this natural foods. And you talk about how in some ways that natural foods comes off as similar to, say, the slow food movement uh, or other kinds of you know, natural food movements in the West, and yet it's different. Could you talk about that and the, the sort of parallel vision, uh, you know, different but the same similar uh, quality of that? Yes. So the way um, – there are two terms that Russians use to describe the food they grow in their own gardens or the food that comes out of the forest, so like mushrooms or berries or wild herbs that they're picking. Um, they might call it um, natural, um, naturalni produkti, so natural products, natural foods, or they talk about it as being ekologicheski chisti, so ecologically clean. And what those mean, and ecologically clean is probably the stronger of those two terms, and basically those are foods that are grown in Russian soil, picked by somebody you know, um, or somebody that is part of a social network, so a friend of a friend, um, and then gets passed through those informal connections. It's not food that goes through the formal economy. It's not food that you buy in the grocery store. So there's this whole informal aspect of it that really emphasizes food that comes out of the ground and passes by hand to hand. And so that's what makes food um, ecologically clean. 
Um, it can be food that is um, perhaps produced according to some traditional um, method, whether that's traditional agriculture or traditional processing, um, but not necessarily. So that's one of the points where there's a distinction between something like slow food. Slow foods very much emphasizes um, traditional methods of growing and production, um, whereas the Russian notion, that may not be as that might be there, but it's not nearly as important as the fact of, of where the food comes from and who touches it, whose hands actually touch that food. Um, and the other piece is that unlike um, some of the other conventional organics movements or slow food movements um, where there's a push against any type of pesticides or um, kind of artificial intervention with the growing, Russian growers aren't so concerned about that. Um, in fact, most people I know use a lot of pesticides. Um, and many of the dacha communities are actually located in places where there's contaminated earth. The soil itself is not that clean. But going with this idea of the Russian soil itself being strong and healthful, there's a sense that Russian soil is itself purifying, that if you plant things in that Russian soil, they will be purified, and they will purify the soil, too. So it's kind of this symbiotic relationship, so that it doesn't matter if the ground is dirty or not. Um, whatever grows out of it is still going to be more healthy than food grown anywhere else. And in fact, um, one of the things about dacha foods in particular is that most folks don't like to wash fresh produce um, because they don't want to remove the dirt that's still on that food because the dirt itself is both a symbolic marker and the actual carrier of that healthfulness. So um, I had a number of babushki tell me that um, the best thing for children was to send them out to the dacha in the summer so they could eat food that came straight out of the soil with that soil on it because that would strengthen their bodies and they would be strong Russians. Um, and so there was this sense that you really needed to have that dirt. And so those types of ideals really um, are very different from kind of conventional organics and slow food ideals about natural foods. I think there's a certain mythology too. I mean, I have about how much, uh, chemicals are being used in production of food in the, in the Soviet Union, in the former Soviet Union, rather. I mean, I, my wife I mean, is always talking about how everything's done naturally there, and I've always found that hard to believe. Um, but perhaps you have some thoughts on that. Um, well, I think there's whether um, people are doing it, quote-unquote, naturally, or whether they're describing it as naturally. And I think it's a case where the, the belief system is far more valuable and powerful than the actual um, techniques. Um, but to some extent, the dacha life probably is a little bit more, quote-unquote, natural than, say, industrial agriculture in Russia, precisely because people don't aren't growing things in huge quantities and they don't necessarily have the capital to buy the, all the different types of equipment um, that they would use. So there is, and you see people walking around with scythes and... Um, hand weeding and doing all of those things. And so there is kind of a sense that there is a more natural um, approach to that. Um, now, in terms of the industrial agriculture, there has been a push recently, um, about the last 10 years, some of the larger 
um, agro farms have started experimenting with types of organic, conventional ag- organic um, farming, or at least using fewer pesticides um, and other, te- you know, other more earth-friendly um, techniques in their farming. And um, I think it's been a little slow for them to be accepted at first, but they're starting to become more mainstream. Um, one of the biggest companies is actually called um, White Dacha, and they supply produce to companies like McDonald's. And so, But they're also playing on the sense of being more natural and authentic by using the word Dacha in their um, promotional materials as well. Um, I guess and I, I do like that white dodge of use. That is wonderful. The uh, going back to one of the other points you were making before about you know about uh, fences. I mean, I think you actually have a, a, there's a story or uh, an episode you talk about um, where, where I, and it didn't sound like it was a particularly um, robust fence at all was put up between two neighbors and it affected uh, their relationship uh, considerably. Yes. And that fence, uh, the fence, there's an update on the fence story between those two neighbors as well. Um, Yes. In this community, like many of the communities I've visited and other communities I've heard about from informants, um, fences have gone in. Neighbors are changing their fences. What used to be little tiny symbolic um, fences of like rose bushes are now being replaced by first kind of chain link fence and then um, really substantial wooden fences and in some cases stone or brick fences and they've increased in height over the years as well and in this particular case this this story seemed to be emblematic of the experience of a lot of people but it was two neighbors they had been neighbors for about 50 years were very good friends um, the two gentlemen in particular, um, the fathers of the two different households, um, frequently visited with one another during the day. They would simply just walk through each other's yards because there was simply a vegetable patch that was the, the demarcation between their two properties. And they were constantly visiting one another all the time, taking um, one person had fresh potatoes, he would take them over. The other person had a bottle of beer and some fish and would bring it over and they'd have a snack. But for years, they had this relationship. And then one summer, um, one family decided to put up a fence. Um, it's not clear why, but all of a sudden, pretty much overnight, over a weekend, this big fence went up. And the one gentleman on um who did not put up the fence, was very hurt. His feelings were very hurt because he felt that his um, neighbor had suddenly sent him a message that they were not going to be friends anymore. And so this actually then set off a lot of antagonism between the two families um, where there was um, a refusal to share food anymore. And in fact, by the last couple of years, they haven't really talked to one another. If they bump into one another outside the Dacha community, they might grudgingly say hi, but they really don't communicate with one another. Um, so over the last year, couple of years, this fence has actually gotten higher. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the original, um, the person who originally put up the fence has now made it higher. Um, and then within this entire Dacha community, the back fences, so the fences that face out into the public forest lands, mm-hmm. um, people are increasingly moving those fences backwards to claim more property. And so what first happened was the neighbor who put up the, the fence between the two properties pushed his back property back with a new fence. And then the neighbor who felt that he was um, being wrong suddenly said, 
well, if my neighbor's going to do it, I don't want him to get any more, so I'm going to push my back fence out as well. So it's now become competitive um, as well to try to take more property. And what's the, what's the state doing about this? Anything? Um, to my knowledge, nothing at the moment. Much of this happens during the, the winter months or on weekends when the state isn't there. And there seems to be a sensibility among Gachniki that if they can get away with it, that's fine. Um, but one of the things that is true about Dacha property at the moment is the property laws in Russia um, real estate property laws are changing so quickly and are so convoluted that most normal citizens don't understand the laws and the authorities also don't understand the laws and are unable to prosecute. And so this creates a lot of wiggle room and um, many citizens and corporations and even local governments are taking advantage of this. So it's kind of like a no man's land at the moment where people are just staking claims on whatever they can get. And there really hasn't been um, anything that local or state authorities have been able to do about this. And you actually mentioned the fact that as these changes are going on, the Dacia has become a prism through which very complex political issues can be under, are made to be understood. That, uh, you know, you have a, a case of uh, a government minister who had a dacha or was given a dacha, and uh, he was dismissed. I maybe I, I, I'm sorry if I don't have that particular episode fully in my head at this point, but uh, there was some issue about a scandal, and it became something that everyone was able to talk about. Yes, um, I believe that that was the Kasyana affair, and. Um, I think that the basic story there was that Kasyanov was a high-ranking official in the government. He was um, part of President Putin's um, group of allies, maybe even in the same political party, um, but then fell out of favor with Putin because he was going to be, um, there was a potential that he was going to be running for president against Putin. So he fell out of favor, and coincidentally at the same time, um, I say coincidentally with um, quotation marks, um, there was an investigation into Kasyanov's dacha that it seemed that he um, purchased his government-issued dacha at a low price and then sold it or was able was going to sell it for a hugely inflated cost. And these were like tens of millions of dollars here for this dacha. And so it appeared that he was trying to defraud the state. Um, so on the one hand, it seemed to be a very clear case of economic um, and legal fraud here. But yet the fact that he was a political leader and there was this other backstory about his relationship with Putin um, really sparked Russians' interests. And so this story captivated people all summer. This was 2005 and really became an opportunity for Dachniki to talk not really about the, the legal and economic system, but really about the political dimensions of um, property ownership, of a sense of community and trust with one's um, friends and colleagues, and really a way for them to articulate a type of critique about the Russian state at that moment. Even though most informants didn't come out and voice um, a direct critique of the Russian state, they used this case to talk about the different issues that were of concern to them. Basically, um, Concerns with having a, um, a one-party 
ruler, um, ruling system, um, of the um, ways in which politics was just um, capricious. Um, and yet at the same time, the ways in which the state, something that happened at the state level could um, intervene so directly in an individual citizen's personal life. And I think in, to a great extent, many of the people I talked with felt some sympathy for Kasyanov because they felt like, well, if he could um, lose his dacha, I could lose my dacha as well, and the state could come in and take it away from me. So I think they they were playing with all sorts of political issues with that one particular case. It wasn't the only case that happened that summer. Um, there were a lot of other scandals having to do with um, entertainment figures and other political leaders. Um, perhaps not getting their dachas legally or doing illegal things at their dachas, but that was the one that really captured the most attention that summer. And what about selling dachas? And, you know, what is the current state of that? I mean, I think, uh, I mean, you do mention the the people who are building new dachas and uh, how this is disturbing uh, conventional ideas about what a proper dacha should look like. Uh, but what is, you know? What are the conventions? And are people selling? Are they buying? If they sell them, do they buy new ones? That's been a little trickier to um, find out when I've been interviewing um, Russians. There, I have talked to people who have sold their dachas and people who are considering selling their dachas. But there seems to be a stigma about actually selling dachas. In fact, a friend of mine said there is told me. We don't have a word that means to give away a dacha. Um, We just have words that mean we are given dachas. So there wasn't even the sense that one could dispose of dacha property. And so when I talked to people who had sold their dachas, they, in most cases, said they tried to explain it in terms of they had no other choice. They had to sell it because they needed the money for something else, to send a son to school, to pay for a relative's medical expenses. Um, And the folks who were thinking about selling their dachas also seem to be very apologetic and would find excuses. Um, But in most cases, these people have been considering selling for a number of years, but still had not actually been able to bring themselves to do that. So I think it's really hard for people to even consider this, to really think seriously about this, um, or at least to admit that they've sold a dacha. That said, people are buying dachas. I mean, there is this market there. Um, And so what seems to be happening is in some cases, a dacha may have been passed down um, to a new generation and um, primarily younger people in their 20s and 30s. And they um, end up selling the dacha either because they don't have time to go to the dacha or it's not in a place that they can access easily. So what they do is they sell the dacha and then buy a new dacha in a place that's more convenient to them. So there seems to be that, people, kind of like what happened during the Soviet era when people needed to move to a different city and they would do apartment swaps. So that seems to be what's happening. And then the new dachas that are, other new dachas that are being purchased by first-time dacha owners, um, many of those are being purchased in plots of land um, areas that were not dacha communities to start with. So villages that have been um, 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 eliminated and turned over into dacha communities by developers or forests that have been cut down and turned into dacha communities. So it's as if there's this whole new generation of, of um, first owners um, of dachas in Russia as well. 
And I think it's that community that um, my Russian informants were most concerned about because they were concerned with those folks not understanding Dacha traditions and understanding the importance of having a community and being a good member of the community. And so most of their criticisms were about those newcomers. Um, and they talked about them as newcomers and as outsiders. Um, and they would label them as the Muscovites or um, the Petersburgers. You know, they're city people who don't understand what we're doing and they're coming in from the outside. And I guess and they do things differently too. I think there's someone had a big party for their, their daughter with a, a, a prominent pop band that came out, and that was seen as a bit unseemly, if I recall, as well. Yes, and all that that summer, um, everybody in that Dacha community who was not invited to the party, and most of them were not invited to the party, spent the entire summer complaining about the music and how loud it was and how um, bad the performers were and how it was clear that they were all gangsters. Um, And then over the next several years, the story enlarged so that, oh, yes, did you hear that the husband of that new family was really in the mafia and he was shot dead. Now his wife is dating another mafia person. And so it just kind of kept going. I have no idea what the truth of the story was, but it was this whole um, sense that the newcomers have bad taste, they're crass, they're low class, they're just um, not people you want to socialize with. But I think it really had to do with the fact that the local residents were hurt that they weren't invited to this party. And, of course, the Dacha was probably a lot finer in its how it was outfitted as well. Or... Yes, uh, although it's not um, clear because one of the first things those new residents did was build this massive wall around it. So you can't really see the Dacha that well, um, but presumably it is um, one of these really elaborate Dachas, but it is kind of hard to tell. I want to go back to an, a point that really uh, comes back to one of the earlier ideas we were talking about in this, the activities, uh, the sense of separateness. You mentioned not only are they busy at the dacha, but it, the way you describe preparing for the dacha itself uh, is quite a task. Yes, I expected that it was my first trip to a dacha. I expected that it was going to be like when I go visit my um, in-laws at their summer cottage. You throw a bathing suit and a bag and some towels and some flip-flops and a bottle of water and your lunch, and that's good. No, we spent a week getting ready for this trip because my landlady needed to make sure that she had everything that she needed um, in order to do the, she and her friend were going to be making raspberry jam because raspberries were in season. So she needed to make sure she had enough sugar. She had enough jars of the right kinds of jars. Um, She needed to bring groceries to her friend um, in the exact right ingredients that her friend needed. Um, All of these different things she had to take. Then she had to make sure that her home was um, ready for her to be gone for a week. And in particular, her son was still living at home, her adult son. So she needed to make sure that all of his clothes were ironed for work, that um, there was food in the freezer for him so that he wouldn't starve, um, you know, that her plants were watered, all of these different things. And so there was this lots and lots of planning that she had to go through before we could even leave, including things like we needed to double check which train we were going to take. You know, there were trains every half an hour or whatever, but she needed to 
um, be precise about which train because she'd heard which this one um, had fewer people on it and was faster. And so all of this planning that took place for what I thought was just going to be a spontaneous trip. And then I saw that repeated over and over again with other friends. Really? I mean, one would think that they would have a fair idea of when the trains leave. Uh, and it, it's it's striking to me that you know that becomes a ritual. Uh, where what accounts for that? I mean, the train schedules don't change that often, do they? Um, actually, well, they don't. But then there's a special dacha season. So in some of the directions um, around the major cities where there are dacha communities, um, the train authorities will actually add extra trains to service those communities. So. Um, Although in recent years there have been cutbacks, now there are fewer trains. But for the most part, um, there, there are more trains. There might be more shuttle buses going out. So there is a sense that there is a, a demand for extra transportation. Um, but yet I, I couldn't quite figure out why my landlady was so intense about making sure to get the exact train. But I think it also has to do with the fact that there is something about the experience of traveling to the Dacha community that's part of this whole ritual and part of what makes the dacha special. So there's something about the distance of actually leaving the city and going out to the dacha that becomes important for people as a way to leave their city life behind. And then the trains or the buses, however they're getting out there, become these spaces of community, of socializing um, on the way to the dacha. Um, in some places informants were telling me that they would get on the train and discover all of their neighbors there so they kind of knew which train their neighbors were going to be on and they could make sure they were on that train or avoid that train if they didn't want to see those neighbors and even which car people were going to be in which wagon on the train um and even in cases where people didn't know one another there seemed to be this sense of spontaneous conversation where people just started talking to one another i've never been in trains that were so lively with people talking and laughing and joking and and um, sharing news and even sharing lunches with one another um, it's really striking about how this transportation becomes part of the dacha experience as well now would these be sort of um Local, you know, we would, what we would call commuter type trains, where you know, with all the cars open, or are these with compartments. These were the the commuter trains, um, the open compartments. Yes, so you have you know the benches where six or eight people kind of huddle on their benches together. And so, but they're you know, it's because it sounds not unlike the other kind of experience where you're talking and talking, but uh, but they're they're sharing their dacha experiences, no doubt. Yes. Um, yeah, and you, uh, I mean, you get everything on those those trains, the commuter trains running out to the Dacha communities. You have families, you have kids, you have dogs, you have cats, you have... It's really lively. <laughs> what about traveling by car? Cars. That was one of my first clues that there was something to the Dacha experience, because whenever I would fly into Russia in the summer, I would get stuck in the horrendous traffic. Um and the taxi driver would always be complaining about, oh, it's Dacha traffic. Oh, this is a nightmare. Um, and so, you know, traffic certainly is getting worse, particularly around places like Moscow because there's so many cars. But particularly on um, Friday nights and Sunday afternoons when people are going back and forth to their Dachas. Um, one of the um, you know cars have become more popular over the last 15 years. And one of the first reasons that 
Russians bought cars was simply to help them get back and forth to their dachas. Um, it was a way to that they could transport everything they needed. They didn't have to schlep their buckets and their bags and their kids and their dogs on the the train, they could put it in the car, and this would be more convenient. But everybody got that idea, and so now traffic is really horrible. And um, sometimes people will cut short their trips to the dacha because they don't want to get stuck in that traffic, or they'll go at off times. They'll go on a Thursday morning and come back on a Saturday midday or you know Saturday at midnight or something, trying to avoid the traffic. Um, and what I've also started seeing among some of my informants was that they no longer use their cars to go to the dacha. They use a car to go to the dacha at the very beginning of the season to take everything out and at the very end of the season to take everything back. Um, and the rest of the time, they're back on public transportation because cars have just become too much of a um, complication in trying to enjoy the, the um, openness and the, the, the pleasure of the dacha life. Now, is, do you have a phenomenon of uh, sort of grass widows going out and spending the summer and not coming back at all? Uh, yes. So what I saw was, um, you mean not coming back permanently? or yeah, Well, just going out for the summer, but not coming back, say, every week, you know, at the end of the weekend, but staying out basically for the uh, the summer while, and then the husband comes back out at the end of the week or uh is or is the employment pattern uh sufficiently um uh you know not uh, gendered that people are uh you know they don't have the capacity to do that mm-hmm. i think it's more age specific so that um people of working age men and women tend to commute for the, just the weekends and then to go back. But retirees, so the grandparents, um, will go out at the beginning of the summer and typically spend the summer um, and then come back at the end. And then the grandchildren are often sent out to be with the grandparents um, during the summer. So it's kind of the, the older generation and the younger generations are at the, the, the dacha um, for most of the summer. I mean, if you actually then look at the retirees who are out there, they're primarily women, but that's just a demographic feature of Russia right now where they're more um, elderly women than elderly men. But um, by and large, it seems to be retirees go out there. And many of my informants actually talked about it as um, if there are multiple generations in a family, the older generation was the, the protection for the dacha that families felt more secure knowing that the grandparents were out there protecting the dacha all summer. So it's kind of like an insurance policy to some extent. Now you mentioned shopping for uh, items. Are there local, are there stores relatively nearby the dachas where they can uh, get hold of necessary things, maybe like milk? Um, it depends on the dacha community. In some cases there are, um, little shops right by the train station where you step off the train, there might be a little tiny, like a mini market there that's got the basics of maybe milk or water, um, bread, um, usually beer and chips, things like that. Um, in some communities, there is a um, truck that drives around. Um, and so it, it shows up in one community on you know, say Tuesday morning. And, um, and my friends call that the, the, the car shop or kind of the Oftalovka, so the, the shop on the automobile shop. 
and it had um, bread and milk and cheese and some fresh produce, um, kind of all the basics that one would need. You could get rice and flour and sugar and oil and all of those things that people would need to kind of keep them through for a week or so. Um, but that was kind of unusual. And most of the communities I visited, there wasn't anything close by. So people had to bring everything out with them. And so that once I understood that, it made more sense why my very first visit, my landlady was so conscientious about collecting um, as much of the as much food as she could because she was really doing her friend's grocery shopping for her because there was nothing close for her friend. And her friend was staying the entire summer then? Mm-hmm. Yes, she was there the entire summer. And now the this, uh, this uh, car shop, as it were, this van that came by, is that a is that entrepreneurial or was that something that had been there in Soviet times as well? Um, it had been there during Soviet times because they talked about, you know, they used to go to it when they were kids. These are, you know, people in their 50s now talking about it. But it wasn't clear if um, this van now was privately owned or whether it was from a um, state-owned shop or part of kind of the, the local municipality doing this. That I couldn't quite figure out. Well, it's all very fascinating uh, to hear about, you know, this summer life that you, uh, that is so, you know, again, so important. Uh, and there's so many aspects to it. Uh, what, what do we learn outside of Russia about this? Uh, you know, what, what understanding Dacha's help us understand, they say, leisure more generally? Uh, there are a couple of things. One is that, I think this is um, probably true of a lot of cottage cultures, that this question of going to the cottage for pure leisure and relaxation um, is a misnomer. That relaxation and leisure is never absent of work. There's always activity, always intensity associated with leisure in order to do it right. Um, and so I think that's something that we can think about. Um, and that applies then to thinking about work more generally. We can think about labor practices and the relationship between labor and rest. Um, I think there's also something to understand about um, pleasure and that pleasure is not always um, associated with true hedonism or kind of an absence of um, discomfort. But the pleasure that Russians get out of their dachas is very much tied to um, recognizing that they're going to be pain points, that, you know, they're not going to enjoy everything about the dacha, but that makes it more worthwhile. So pleasure then really becomes about what is meaningful and what's worthwhile. And I think that's something that we can extend to, to larger um, conversations, too. And then the last thing, I think, is simply rethinking what... Um, how property relations get tied up in all sorts of other questions about community and whether a property owner is um, a part of a community and how to become part of a community or whether a property owner is truly an individual um, separate from the community. I think the Dutch, especially the stuff that's going on more recently in terms of property changes in Russia, really help us think about what makes community and owning property more generally. Very interesting things to consider. I'll have to think about those. Is that taking you in a new direction for your future projects, uh, or what? What do you have a new project that you're working on already? 
I do. I have a couple of projects. I have um, a completely different project that I'm writing up in a book on religious charities in Russia. That's kind of a different part of my research life. But this Dacha project is now taking me into a new um, set of questions around civility and landscape and thinking about how particular spaces and spaces of nature um, produce or are expected to be associated with certain values of civic life and civility and um, friendliness, kindness, those sorts of things. Um, One of the really interesting side things that came out of the Dacha project that I poked out a little bit in the book but didn't really get to talk about in too much detail is the problem of trash and graffiti and vandalism in Dacha communities, which seems to be mirroring mirroring trends elsewhere um, in Russia in cities and other um, rural spaces. And so I've really become interested in how Russians now are thinking about the desecration of landscape and what that tells us um, both about kind of historical traditions of using space to cultivate particular civic practices in Russia and now contemporary manifestations of that. There's a wonderful picture in the book of a site where someone has put up a sign saying, you know, dispose of trash in the proper place. (laughs) And then apparently because there was no other place to put it, I mean, because I, 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 I'm willing to be charitable to the people who put the trash there, uh, they decided that, well, that was about the best place to put the trash. <laughs> yeah, and that became one of the, the ironies of this research. Every time I saw a sign that said, don't put your trash here, that was the biggest trash heap. And so I would take pictures, and some of my friends were just aghast at this. They were so embarrassed by this. Um, even though they recognize that this is a problem and there really isn't anywhere else to put it. And one of the pictures, too, there's this really wonderful quote on one of these signs about don't put your trash here. It was, um, Dajniki, don't be pigs, um, with this wonderful mound of garbage. And I just thought that was absolutely brilliant, <laughs> even though horrifying. Yeah, yeah. But again, without the infrastructure to deal with the trash, I mean, it does have to go someplace. And I don't think you want to, I don't think you'd become very popular, Dashnik, if you took it back on the train with you. Exactly. Well, Melissa, it has been a pleasure to talk to you about your book. And I wish you the best as you continue with more of that research. And uh, thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, wishing you the best. Until next time.